1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of today's podcast, and I'm pleased to have with me today uh, George Diaz uh, to discuss his recent book, Border Contraband, A History of Smuggling Across the Rio Grande, published by the University of Texas Press in 2015. Dr. Diaz is an assistant professor of history at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, where he teaches U.S. history and conducts research on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. Border Contraband is his first book, and it has recently received the Jim Parrish Award for Documentation and Publication of Local and Regional History by the Webb County Heritage Foundation, as well as the 2016 Tejas Focal Nonfiction Book Prize by the National Association for Chicana and Chicano Studies. Hello, George, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies.
0: Thank you, DJ. It's an honor.
1: Well, great. Um, I'm excited to have you with us, and I'd just like you to begin by telling us a bit about yourself, uh, you know, your own personal and, and professional background.
0: Um, well, thank you for having me on. Uh, my name is George Diaz. Um, my parents were both teachers. Uh, as a matter of fact, they spent their whole lives working in the public school system, and I thought I was going to be a teacher also. But um, they were history minors, so I guess I'm the recessive gene in the fact that I just became enamored with history. <laughs> so. Um, Anyway, um, I was born and raised in South Texas, and uh, I went to school at Texas A&M International University, and that's the A&M school that's there in Laredo. And uh, I remember, you know, just really falling in love with history, and, and uh, but not learning much about the community that I came from until I got to, to graduate school.
2: Right.
0: And, um, and it was something I was always very curious about, because I saw a lot of things growing up that just made me interested in the past, so for instance, When I was a child walking the streets of Laredo with my parents, we'd see, um, you know, a central we'll see downtown and there'll be all these empty boxes littering the streets of Laredo. And, you know, my mom told me, like, you know, like those boxes are because people buy brand new items in the United States and take them to Mexico. And I said, well, why? And they said, well, because they want these items. But, you know, it's very expensive if you take a brand new item. So they take it out of the box in order to try to save money. So there's all these Empty boxes of stereos and TVs and VCRs. This is the 80s, right? Right. Of all this material. And and then I just thought, oh, well, this is just what happened, right? It's just something I grew up with and just took for granted. And of course, like growing up there, um, you know, there's a lot of information about smuggling that's in the news or in newspapers. And I just kind of grew up seeing that. And I remember, you know, people that you go to high school with, I remember were involved a little bit with illicit trade. And that's just something that was a, you know, a daily fact of life on the border. So anyway, I'm working on my master's thesis, and this is back in 2003. Mm -hmm. And um, I was looking for a a topic because I wanted to study, you know, borderlands history, and I thought, well, what can I study that hasn't been done before? Because people had done research on the Mexican Revolution's impact on the Rio Grande and the communities that, you know, I I call home. So I started thinking about, about smuggling. You know, what about the history of smuggling? And I was just very, very curious to know about you know, how it developed and, you know, over time and how we got to, you know, these headlines of, about drug violence and these kind of activities. So um, I went to the library, you know, being a historian in training, I went looking for a book on the history of smuggling and I couldn't find the book I wanted to read. I could not mm-hmm. find the history of smuggling across the border. And it was really weird because all I could find was journalists talking about Pablo Escavar. There were political scientists and sociologists talking about contemporary smuggling, uh, but there was no history of smuggling across the border. And I thought, how could that be, considering it's such a, I mean, it's just an everyday topic you always right. see in the news. So, what I did was, um, uh, you know, I told my professors about it and I said, well, you know, do something about it. Like, I mean, that's a good problem to have. There's no research on it. So. What I did is I started looking for, um, I, I started to think, well, what could be like the most obvious time where smuggling was occurring historically? Like, what would be like an iconic moment to study? So I thought, well, prohibition, right? That's like the most obvious time that there was a lot of, you know, illicit trade on the border in terms of alcohol. The United States had passed laws barring the, um, the production of alcohol in the United States, you know, in 1920. Yet, you know, the region of the the borderlands predominantly Catholic. And of course, Mexico never passed any prohibition laws at all. So how are they going mm-hmm. to try to enforce these dry laws? When people want alcohol, and Mexico is, of course, producing a lot of it. So I studied prohibition, and I wanted to look at that. And there was a lot of books about prohibition in terms of people like Al Capone and iconic gangsters, but nothing about, you know, the community that that I called home. Right. So what I did, So what I found was, I found um, Texas Ranger memoirs is what I found. They were like these Texas Rangers who served in the 19 teens and 20s, and they have these stories about them killing bandits and these kind of things. And I just realized that that was very, very one sided. You know, just law enforcement perspectives on on smuggling. And smuggling is a very, very hard thing to study because, right. I mean, I mean, you only have records when people are caught. Right. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> I mean, you're studying a clandestine activity, right? It's very, very difficult to, to, to find records of these guys and women who are smuggling, and there are women smuggling also. And I thought, well, how can I tell the story of these people who who didn't get caught, you know, people who succeeded, and also try to recover their voices because everything that I'm examining is coming from the perspective of, of law enforcement in the state who's trying to come down on these people. So, of course, I embraced the work of Americo Paredes. Americo Paredes was, you know, pioneering at the music college before that term even existed, looking at corridos and folk songs. Right. So I started looking at, I started looking for, for corridos about smugglers. And because I kept on finding in the newspapers stories about tequileros. And tequileros were uh, men who brought alcohol from Mexico into the United States on the backs of burros. And they would get into these shootouts with these Texas Rangers. And I was reading the, mem- the Ranger memoirs in English language newspapers talking about these shootouts. But I wanted to know about what it was like for the tequileros.
2: Right.
0: So I'm looking for these these folk songs and I was very, very fortunate because I was uh, in a class and it was only about five people in this class and there was this older gentleman and he told me that there was this woman who was a sister of Leandro from the Corrido los Tequileros. And I'm okay. like, really? He's like, Yeah. So in Zapata, which is not far from my hometown, this woman was in her nineties and she had a little feed store and she you know, asserted that she was a sister of, of, of this famous liquor smuggler who was mentioned by name in the song. So, like, um, I got the phone number for her, and I called her, and my dad and I drove out there, and we brought her some pan and we had a conversation. <laughs> right. And it was amazing, because, like, like she told me the story about the time her brother went off to smuggle some tequila during Prohibition and didn't come back. And basically, Leandro is home, and he's ill. And uh, what happened is there's a knock on the door and two of his friends are there and they ask him if he wants to make some money because he needs some money and they're going to go on a tequila run and they don't come back because they're killed by Texas Rangers. Right. And uh, so she's telling me the story and I'm like, oh my God, here we have like a, a firsthand account of, of, of this from the perspective of the people who are engaged in these activities. And the thing that happened next that really blew my mind was she asked me if I wanted to see a picture of her brother, and I said, of course, I want to see a picture of your brother, Leandro.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the picture she showed me was his wedding picture. Wow. Yeah, so this famous liquor smuggler who's mentioned by name in this song, like, like he had a wife. He had children. Right. Uh, the picture was him in a suit. Like, he's, he doesn't, he's not carrying a pistola. He doesn't have a bandolier. He doesn't have a bigote. You know, he's a young man who saw this opportunity to make some money, and he's not this... I mean, he's not this cartoon villain that you sometimes see on the news. And um, so anyway, she was a little girl when her brother was killed, but she knew the story from her parents telling her about her brother's death. And then she said that the rangers buried him in a shell grave out in the Monte in 1922. And then in the 50s, they went back and recovered the body because they were afraid to, to give him a proper burial soon after the rangers had murdered him. So they went back and dug him up. And it wasn't until 2000 until um, they gave him a marker. And they gave him a Christian barrel. They put the, a marker on, uh, on his. And what, I went to go visit the cemetery to see his monument. I was amazed that they had put the entire ballad on his monument. Wow. The entire ballad is there in stone. And it, it amazed me because this legendary figure mm-hmm. was there in stone and I took the date off the grave because uh, you know I'm a historian, I tried to find that newspaper account and to see how those two stories lined up in terms of how law enforcement and the English language press looked at this versus the way people remembered it and how this person could be seen as a hero locally but condemned by law enforcement and it'd be the same individual. And that's how I got started in trying to uncover the history of illicit trade Because I knew that it was something that was happening all around me, but it's an ephemeral thing, you know, it's a clandestine activity, smugglers are trying to hide their actions, and I wanted to historicize it so they're not like this, you know, these apparitions, but people who are, you know, live around us, people who have everyday lives, who are not cliches, but human.
1: Right. You know, and that's one of the things that I enjoyed most about the book. You know, it, it... it really is, you know, in a sense, a, a community history of a way, but, you know, a history of communities that exist on both sides of the border. And they're, you know, connected, of course, historically before the formation of uh, the U.S.-Mexico border, which, you know, is a product of the, the Mexican-American War that ends in 1848. Um, but it's also, it's, it, you know, these communities and their, their relations are maintained You know, at the time that these um, and the the national borders are hardening. So, can you tell, talk to us a bit more about, um, you know, this the social history that you you narrate that you create around, you know, this activity, but uh, you know, in the way that you're you're just explaining, you really humanize these people. You know, you you provide a a much fuller picture of, you know, the types of people that. Uh, participated in varying degrees of illicit trade whether it just been you know kind of petty smuggling or or trafficking
0: well a lot of this has to do with the fact that you know having grown up there there was basically two types of illicit trade that i was able to discern there's like petty smuggling for personal consumption Mm -hmm. you know people who bring over things like um medication without a prescription because they they couldn't afford to see a doctor but they go to mexico and get the medication they need or little things like gifts you know for christmas time and that's petty smuggling that happens all the time i mean even in thanksgiving there's people who go across to get aguacates you know and they have to take mm-hmm. the seed out things like that <laughs> so there's the kind of stuff that i always saw but the other top thing that would happen of course is trafficking so we're talking about the commercial smuggling of of drugs so the commercial smuggling of weapons and these kind of activities so this is like the spectrum of smuggling being a common practice but also something that is you know, at a certain scale, becomes a professional business, right? Right. So I started wondering, well, how far back does that go? And um, what I discovered is that it goes back to, I mean, it's as old as the border itself. So my hometown uh, was founded in 1755. Laredo was established in 1755, so it's older than the government of the United States.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that community basically bridged the river. It was on both sides of the redundant. Well, so fast forward to the U.S.-Mexico War, 1848, and now a border is created in the middle of this community, and not just my hometown, but communities up and down the Rio Grande. So now local trade becomes international trade. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's a huge deal because this Rio Grande, which you could walk across in some places, now becomes an international border. Local trade becomes international trade, and the crux of it is the governments of Mexico and the governments of the United States get most of their revenue in the 19th century from trade taxes, from tariffs.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: So, I mean, this is a big deal. So think about the fact that, like, um, you know, there's no income tax. So, The government makes its money by trade by trade taxes. So the Customs Service, you know, are basically, they're, they're treasury agents. They're taxmen with guns. But instead of sitting at the port of New York waiting for a you know, a ship to come in to tax it, they're riding along the length of the grande trying to police people bringing over vacas, mm-hmm. you know? Well, what if you just need to take your vacas across the river to get them some food? Well, you've now smuggled your flock and exactly. all that all those animals are dutable. Or if you just want to go across the river to get a, a deal on some hides or whatever, the tax when you bring them back could be as high as 20 to 30%. And there was no incentive to pay 20 to 30% taxes on these basic goods when the border is you know just created people thought it was excessive and it created um, an attitude where smuggling was you know a right that it was not something that was immoral to do that the border itself the creation of that as a trade bearer was something that should be disregarded because it was unfair to pay these taxes
2: right
0: so what I argue is in those first decade of the borders creation people developed a moral economy that accepted certain forms of illicit trade as just, as a way to get around these excessive trade laws. And that evolved over the period of the border's life in the 19th to the 20th century, as you know, these laws became hardened. So what I basically say is, in the 19th century, a lot of people were just smuggling to save money um, on tra- on these trade taxes. But as the border became hardened, some entrepreneurs, some merchants, came to the realization you know what like these trade laws are excessive but you know what i could probably make a lot of money if i traffic in bulk if i smuggle commercial amounts of this and i could sell them under the the legal limit in terms of like the on the black market because i, I could sell them under the the tax expense right
2: mm-hmm.
0: so that's where you find individuals like mariano resendez mariano resendez was a mexico Tejano, so he's a Tejano, right he's a, a u.s citizen And this guy in the 19th century was smuggling into Mexico and getting into shootouts with the fiscal agents. He's getting into shootouts with the Mexican Customs Guards in the 19th century. And there's corridos about this man. There's like, he's like a legendary folk smuggler. But the amazing thing is this man is not smuggling, you know, from Mexico into the United States. This guy is smuggling from Texas into Mexico And he's bringing over calico, he's bringing over textiles, and he's Mm -hmm. getting to shoot up with the Mexican government. So this guy is like this legendary figure. He's kind of like this social bandit, right? Right. But he's a very real man, and he's a merchant. You know, he doesn't seek violence, but he defends his his life when confronted. And I was doing research in the Secretaria de Relaciones Exteriores down there in Mexico, and I found the Mexican government... Complaining about this guy, that this legendary smuggler is very real, especially mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. He's killing their federal agents, and they're writing letters to the U.S. government asking for help and asking the United States to secure their border from dangerous smugglers who are invading Mexico. And that this is happening in the 19th century, I mean, was, was very, very striking to me, writing from the 21st. Right. That's... You know that these, that these concerns were actually reversed back then. That smuggling was a two-way street, and that Mexico was complaining about its, its 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 sovereignty from these dangerous American smugglers. So I mean, it was it was um it was something that was very very rich in terms of like uh, uh something that really really captured my attention. I was very very happy to be conducting that research and learning more about you know the evolution of these ideas and these policies.
1: Yeah, and, you know, it really captured my attention as well, Um, you know, your discussion of, you know, the development of this moral economy, uh, you know, how, you know, local – how the local populations along the border uh, came to a sense of, you know, what was just and unjust regarding uh, the laws and the implementations of, you know, tariffs that were being imposed upon them. So can you talk – you've you've touched on this a bit, but uh, can you speak a bit more about, um, you know, who policed this, you know, how it, what were the intricacies of this moral, uh, moral economy and what was allowed, uh, what was not permitted. Um, and, and again, you know, who were the, the people that were really in engaged in, um, you know, policing its, its boundaries.
0: Um, okay. Well, basically, if you took something that's um, regulated across the border uh, without permission, you're smuggling. So smuggling isn't just the smuggling of prohibited items that are illegal, like, like drugs. It's uh, basically moving things contrary to law. So all these trade taxes on things that, like, that people needed, like, like flour, like sugar, like, like, like textiles, so that way they could be clothed, basically were very, very excessive, which prompted a lot of individuals who were consumers and merchants to, to circumvent the law mm-hmm. as a way to survive and make money. And because they didn't think it was correct to pay that, they developed a certain acceptance of these illicit trades. And I call that the moral economy. So what happens is the Mexican government and the United States government have customs agents on their sides of the border. And they're trying to apprehend these smugglers as a way to generate money for the state. These state agents, of course, it's their job to be tax men with guns and they apprehend smugglers when they can. But what happens is, like in cases where these people are apprehended, the juries find them innocent because the jurors are juries who are people in the society who don't think it's wrong that uh, they're enjoying the, the benefits of a free trade. So the locals do not condemn these folks and a way you can also trace a celebration of these individuals is looking how uh, they're celebrating song.
2: Right. Individuals
0: like Mariano who's a smuggler of textiles is seen as a folk hero. So the stadiums are trying to apprehend these folks, but when they are apprehended, uh, oftentimes they're not convicted. Uh, and also because juries do not find this thing to be beyond the pale. And, and the customs agents themselves you know, are, are trying to do this because of you know, their obligation to do so. So there's that, but that becomes more complicated when we enter the 20th century, because in the 20th century, everything changes. So, for instance, in the 19th century, the governments are making their money by taxing trade. But in the 20th century, rather than tax trade, many items become prohibited outright. So I'm talking about narcotics with the Harrison Act. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about alcohol during prohibition and weapons that are being smuggled from the United States into Mexico during the revolution. And it's very, very different from smuggling potatoes that you're going to sell to smuggling drugs. Right. And locals agreed with that. Locals did not like that the border became the site of trafficking, that outsiders come to their communities to smuggle drugs that locals do not wish to consume. You know, the border becomes a site for this activity. So what happens is those are the folks that get condemned by society in terms of them being denounced by locals. There'll be more witness testimony against these kind of individuals. If there's going to be folk songs about, you know, um, you see the evolution of these folk songs. For instance, Mariano Resendez is celebrated as a hero. Even mm-hmm. Los Tequileros, who are smuggling a banned substance like tequila, are seen as heroes because they fight against those rinchas. But mm-hmm. the first narco-corridos come from the 1930s. as Cagablanca Blanca and El Contrabandista. And those are about people who were smuggling heroin.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and if you look at those folk songs closely, uh, those people are not celebrated in those, in those corridos. They're basically saying things like, they get locked up, they get thrown in jail, you know, and like the song ends with things like, leave this crooked business alone, you don't want to get involved in this trade, look at what just happened. So these drug dealers are not celebrated in song the way earlier smugglers were. And it's because they've transgressed beyond local acceptance levels of smuggling. And it's very, very different to bringing over tequila that you or yourself are going to enjoy versus bringing over something that was outside of uh, people's acceptance. You know, things like like opium and things like that. Right. So, and on top of that, like you have like more dangerous individuals in the 20th century who are more inclined to pick up a gun, and society does not like violence because it's something that would create more invasive inspection. Mm-hmm. And you can see that also with um. In terms of gender. So, for instance, uh, there's numerous cases of women who were smugglers in the 19th century. Right. Who were, uh, uh, yeah, that were bringing over things that uh, that they enjoyed, like napkins and, and, and these kind of things that, that, that they just needed for their survival, like, like, you know, flour, sugar. And what happened was, even though they might be bringing over things that people might not think are bad, they didn't like that women were smuggling because what happens is, that invites more scrutiny by state agents.
1: Exactly. You know, right. like,
0: yeah, the, the male customs inspectors are going to start patting down women looking for a contraband. And that puts all women in danger, right, making right. female smugglers pariahs. And female smugglers got denounced frequently by locals because they were worried that these customs agents would look at their mothers or their wives or their daughters. And that was beyond the pale. Did you want to ask me a follow-up
1: question about that? That was – you know, you just went right into that one. You know, my next question was about gender, you know, and how, you know, even gender operated within, you know, the contrabandista economy, you know, whereas certain, you know, items that were permitted, you know, are allowed for males to be, you know, smuggled. If a woman did the same thing, it was, you know, outside of, you know, the – moral economy and because of the danger. And and I I appreciate how you you mentioned that. A lot of, you know, the policing, if you will, of within the community of what was allowed, uh, what wasn't allowed, you know, to be um, smuggled freely had to do with the the types of danger and scrutiny it put the community under. Is that right?
0: Well, what's the community in terms of, like, people's moral economy is smuggling and the society that accepts this. Factors are things like... um, like uh what is being trafficked is it something that is for the person's immediate uh family is it something that is necessary such as during war one people are smuggling flour and sugar into mexico because people are hungry and in need
2: exactly you know
0: that's very different than smuggling things like narcotics so women are involved in illicit trade also and first off finding smugglers in the historical record is very difficult finding female smugglers is even more difficult so you could take that one or two ways, either less women were smuggling or what I like to think is women were more effective smugglers, right. <laughs> yeah, but they were more effective smugglers and therefore they were less likely to be apprehended. And right. part of that is the fact that in the 19th century, uh, there were no female customs inspectors patting down women's bodies. Mm-hmm. There are reports of in the 19th century women smuggling uh, cigars under their skirts in like specially rigged dresses that allowed them to cash these cigars under their skirts, and they know this is going on, but they very, very rarely are able to pat these women down because it would create an uproar. I found a couple of cases where customs agents didn't inspect women's bodies in the 19th century, and it created, you know, huge backlash by the community in terms of the community not cooperating with government officials after that because they were incensed that these men would inspect women. So... In the 20th century, we have more and more female customs agents working on the border, like Adia Perea and a couple of other people are working as inspectors. So the, the, now the customs service has women able to inspect um, uh, females they thought would be involved in illicit trade. So the community became very conscious that now like their women are going to be monitored in this way. Mm-hmm. So what I found is, Uh, you found locals who are basically acting as witnesses on behalf of the state and basically reporting suspects. And you see a lot of females in the early era of prohibition being arrested for bringing over platos of tequila, you know, bringing over tequila in a a leather pouch under their dress because they have, like, this underground cantina. And one of the reasons why... Locals are reporting this is because they are wary of these agents inspecting women close to them. So this moral economy, you know, has its has its limits about what is accepted, and gender plays a big role in that. There's something the society did not want women doing because it put you know all women in, in danger of this kind of invasive, you know, groping. So, I mean, gender is certainly a factor, and also things like age. Um, mm. In terms of, I've seen cases where an older man would be apprehended with something and he'll get like a lighter sentence just because people don't want to um, to put that burden on him. And one of the hardest things to trace, honestly, uh, is when officers look the other way. Mm, because right. I do believe that's happening, but it's not the kind of thing that they would put down in the journal. Like today I saw some smugglers <laughs> right. and I felt bad for them and I just merely gave them a harsh word but i have found stories where um uh, where um you know it's it's always great when people are fighting in the archives like when one officer doesn't like the other officer cuz then you can get like you know more exactly. material
2: right
0: so so like in the 1880s when um when um i'm sorry in the late 19th century when the army is chasing Captain Garautzar across uh, across the Rio Grande you know the army is 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 petrified of these customs agents because they think that the customs agents are not good state agents they're not good officers of the government because the army says that the customs men are married to local women and the local women are blood relatives to the smugglers who are crossing the border mm-hmm. and that the customs agents are turning a blind eye to their brother-in-law right. <laughs> you know so like so I'm, I'm interested in this idea of the state and the state trying to build this boundary but of course these people to a certain extent become you know a mesh in the community they're policing in terms of like attitudes about what is dangerous smuggling that needs to be batted versus other things that perhaps could be tolerated
1: mm-hmm. yeah no, know and that really gets to um where i wanted to go with uh you know with the next question, um, a lot so much of what we're talking about uh, is, you know, with these communities that exist along, you know, a, a border um, and an area that we refer to as borderland, um, is that it. Borderlands exist in this this type of gray area where you know the formation of laws uh, uh, attempt to impose new types of you know restrictions on things that are very commonplace, as we've been discussing, but it creates this uh, gray area as you you mentioned in the book. So I wanted to talk a bit more about. Uh, you know, your your take on this as well and you know, the kind of more general historical significance. You know, at the beginning of the book, you, you really kind of tie in uh, these uh, historical practices of smuggling with, uh, you know, contemporary trafficking, or at least you allude to that. So um, what is it – I guess the question is what is it then about – can you speak to what is it about the, you know, the U.S.-Mexico borderlands and areas, particularly since your book focuses on the Rio Grande region, um, that, that makes it this this difficult space – um in you know to uh, for states you know particularly to impose these type of you know restrictions on people
0: well nothing is illegal until the government makes it illegal and people find a way to get things what they want so by creating laws barring things you fundamentally create a market for them Mm -hmm. so aside from people evading the law in order to get what they want if you make the stakes high enough in terms of the barriers, it now becomes lucrative to smuggle. So what I argue is the fact that the, the more um, policing there is, the more valuable the commodity that is being sought after. So what happens is smuggling becomes professionalized over time from local people who are trying to merely evade the law to get by to people who are making a significant amount of money circumventing the law, right. professional smugglers, traffickers. And those traffickers are more likely to defend their investment through deadly force. Mm -hmm. So smuggling gets more professionalized over time from people who are doing it casually to traffickers who, you know, are more inclined to violence. So you up the ante and you up the cost of, of, of I mean, basically the the profits made by traffickers.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: And also this is a crime, you know, like this is... This is something that um, is the second old profession. You know, I like that quote. Like, the smugg- I read this in a book somewhere. I forget where. Like, smuggling is the second old profession, <laughs> which basically tells me it's remarkably resilient. Right. The idea that you could somehow stop crime is absurd. Right. Crime yeah. can be combated, but it cannot be stopped. So, you see that over that evolution over a hundred-year period, at least in the period that I examine my book as. States are trying to create borders and people are adjusting to these things first by circumventing the law in order to try to get by to people who use the law and find the cracks within the state system and find ways to get what they want by trafficking. You know, basically trafficking becomes more sophisticated as time goes on, as more and more professionals, you know, are, are the ones doing it. Mm
2: hmm.
1: No, that's, I hope I ask yeah, that, 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 exactly. No, it is, um, and it's what I find also interesting. Um, you know, is your, your you've referred many times to your use of corridos of you know songs and ballads that that you know celebrated some of the you know the figures, some of the contrabandistas. Uh, uh, can you speak a little bit more about um, you know why that source is so important to you uh, in in telling the stories that you do?
0: Virtually everything that we examine in terms of trying to recover a history of illicit trade comes from the perspective of law enforcement. So that's law mm-hmm. enforcement in Mexico, law enforcement from the United States. In the case of officers in the United States, a lot of those people are speaking from a place of great prejudice. So the, the tequileros that were killed in the 1920s were killed by officers who were massacring Mexicans during the plan de San Diego, the mm-hmm. same officers. The newspapers that you read are basically informed by... Interviews with officers and they're described as bandits or thieves So in order to try to recover what smuggling meant for the people who were involved in it in order to cover their voices virtually the only thing that you can You can be able to, to use are these folk songs because they're basically brought up from the ground up by the communities that are producing These individuals who are involved in this illicit trade. Exactly. So it's a way yeah. of creating a counter narrative to these you know, very, very racialized uh, state perspectives and giving the individual some agency. I'm trying to humanize the community that are stigmatized through these tr- racialized tropes. Right. And the folk songs provide a window into capturing how they were as people with families and people who you know have needs and um, were trying to meet those needs the way they thought they best could. So um, this, the the um, the Cordillo in many cases captures their voice, and uh, I was very very happy to to be able to, to to recover them and try to historicize them because oftentimes I love a medical part of this, but he'll you know he'll he'll say something that I want to read the footnote, and they may not be a footnote. I want to historicize these figures, right? Right,
2: exactly. They're no
0: longer legendary, but people that I can identify in terms of people who you know like uh, have more you know have more flesh and blood to them.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly comes out that way. Uh, you know, there's just a number of stories that, that really struck me. I mean, you mentioned one of those, uh, you know, with uh, Leonardo and, um, you know, but really your I think your effort to humanize the community and, and, and explain how, uh, you know, the – The imposition of not just a border, I mean, you know, but also, you know, these laws that really counteracted uh, and and went against just the the common everyday practice that so many of us could understand, Uh, you know. how that really put them in difficult circumstances and whereby you know the development of you know this moral economy and how it was p- how it was regulated by you know the communities how you know it, there are these reciprocal relationships between uh US customs agents you know and you know members of the local community you know it just really complicates the the not not just the the, the contemporary narrative that we see of course in you know media and you know this this year is even you know uh, somehow, I wonder how it could have even gotten any worse than what we've seen in the past. But uh, in representations of the border, continually to be, as you as you mentioned here, represented through tropes, but even through, um, you know, the historical record, even through you know textbooks, you know, our understanding of the border, uh, many times becomes you know very much relied on these notions of legality and illegality that are shaped, as you mentioned, by you know so-called official documents that come from state authorities. And those documents fail to explain, you know, the human side of it, you know, and that, that allow just ordinary people to connect with it and understand, okay, I get why that happens. You know, I get why these people would, you know, allow, you know, this type of smuggling to occur. You know, if I was in their shoes, I probably would have done exactly the same thing, right?
0: Well, I mean, the thing is, like, one of the things that I found is because I'm writing this as, as the worst of the drug violence is happening in Juarez.
1: Exactly. And right.
0: like, like 708, and that was was horrifying in terms of, of just its human toll. So I'm writing the story in the midst of that. And one of the things that stood out to me is the fact of how historically smugglers basically seek discretion. They do not seek violence. Violence right, yeah. mm-hmm. is very, very bad for business. If you're trying <laughs> to circumvent the law, if you're trying to evade authority, the worst thing that could you could do is engage law enforcement. They're mm-hmm. trying to... Evade. They're trying to fly under the radar. They're trying. They're going through the Monte at night, you mm-hmm. know, going around ranches and cities, trying to avoid confrontation. So the best smugglers are those who are evading confrontation. They 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 abhor violence. It's bad business. It creates attention. So historically, you have to think of these smugglers as entrepreneurs, yeah. as merchants, as people who are trying to evade detection, people who do not seek violence, and in terms of what happened during, you know, the like oh seven oh eight and in, in, in places like Juárez, was something that had never happened in all of history. In terms of the border, in terms of its violence, so you know, it, it kind of shows you that, you know, that it's it's not a, a um, that it's um it's it's a place that 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 has a lot of fear connected to it. And I was trying to provide some background to show how. It's it's really not as as scary if we look into the past in terms of what it was. And also the idea that at one point that the border was secure, you see that appeal in political rhetoric of the day where people right. say like secure the border. Well the border was never secure. Right. It right. never was. <laughs> and and uh and the idea that it once was is absurd. As a matter of fact, the border's more police now than ever before. Mm-hmm. Um wow. but um If you look at law enforcement like estimates for the amount of things that they are seizing, it's 10%. It's between five and 10% of what crosses the border country law is seized. And that figure is the figure they've been using for a century because I've seen reports from the 1920s and 1920s where law enforcement says we only get about 10%. And now with the benefit of predator drones, you know, like all kinds of technology, the border fence, law enforcement have continued to claim that they only apprehend about 10%. 10%, yeah. even though the, the state policing has multiplied tremendously. So, you know, this idea that the border is something that was once secure is incorrect. The idea that you could somehow win mm-hmm. in terms of stopping it is incorrect. This mm-hmm. is a remarkably resilient activity. It's like trying to stop crime. Mm-hmm. It's like something that cannot ever be eliminated. It's something that is actually a byproduct of the border because the, the these regulations cause smuggling. As long as people want something, they're going to find a way to get it. And um, trying to understand historically is something that is, you know, a mundane activity rather than a state emergency.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's something that I hope uh, we can get by looking at this historically.
1: Yeah. No. Great. Great. Uh, I think certainly your your book provides so much historical background and, and context. Uh, just reading through it, you know, it it strikes me, and and I do this was I think this is part of my own fascination and research on you know the U.S.-Mexico border region is because. So much of what I find, even in my research um, of things that happened you know anywhere whatever there was a hundred years ago to seventy years ago just so directly relate to contemporary issues it's almost as if you could you could literally change the date on a lot of these things and the type of discourse that's spoken you know, about issues uh, you know legality illegality uh, things of that sort um, is you know, they certainly weren't frozen in time, very fluid, um, and have continued right up to the present. So it made me just think, and as we wrap up, I would wanted to know a bit why, uh, you know, the book itself, your narrative stops in, in 1945. And, of course, they all books have to have a, a beginning and an end point. Your book roughly covers about 100 years, from 1848 to 1945. Uh, but in particular, why did you uh, feel that was a good place to stop?
0: Um, well, I can answer one of two ways. I could answer uh, basically (laughs) very, very bluntly, or I could answer a way that's more uh, politic. I'm going to answer very bluntly. Uh, It was 100 years, Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of material to go through, and I felt that I had examined smuggling historically. And to go on beyond 45, we're getting into the contemporary uh, uh, issues revolving around narcotics trafficking, and there were some scholars who were working on that topic. So I, I thought that I wanted to look at You know smuggling developing historically and how these attitudes were basically shaped by the mid 20th century and of course would be complicated by contemporary uh, illicit needs. You know so for instance like um, I do think that the moral economy persists to this day in terms of people circumventing the border for the smuggling of things like iPods and things like this for Christmas Mm -hmm. but that is completely overshadowed by the very 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 real drug war. Right. You know, yeah. so I think that there's a place for the moral in terms of its understanding of the board today. Mm-hmm. But it's the kind of stuff that you would need the the approaches of a sociologist or anthropologist, you know, in order to 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 discern. Howard Campbell has done some amazing work in terms of like talking about um, the contemporary drug war. But those are are tools of of uh, of of, of someone from a different discipline. Right, and uh, right. my sister always teases me. she's like, "Why don't you talk about smoking today? Said, well, I told her i'm not a journalist you know i'm a, I'm a historian right. and um and I wanted to to get the book out there because um you know um i you know i i have been working on it for some time, and it was time to let it go
1: exactly, yeah, no, well, as I said again, it just you know it's just a it's a great job, and uh I think it's a it has such an appeal to such a wide audience uh, for anybody really, you know, ish- interested in um, contemporary issues related to um, the border, but particularly those that desire, you know, to want to get a, a background and understanding to, you know, the the lived experiences on the ground. I think that's, that's part of the real gem of this book. So just uh, kudos to you on that. Um, you know, as we wrap up, what we typically like to do is give all of our um, – you know, guess an opportunity to tell us somewhat of, of what it is you're working on now. Uh, so uh, that can be, a, I don't know, uh, is there a new project uh, that's that's coming into formation at this time? Or uh, are you just... Oh, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, tell us a little bit about it, if you will.
0: I'm working on two different things. Uh, right now I'm working with, uh, um, with a woman named Holly Carbo. She's a historian who, studied, who studies uh, vice on the Detroit-Windsor borderlands. Her book just came out. It's called Sin City North. So her and I are working together on an edit collection called Policing North America's Borderlands, looking at uh, how states have tried to police their borders in terms of the U.S.-Canada and U.S.-Mexico border in the 19th and 20th century and how border people have sought to, you know, deal with these policing practices. So it's a comparative history of policing across the U.S.-Canada-U.S.-Mexico border. Nice. And we're working together on that, and we think it's great to put these two borders in conversation to see, you know, how they've evolved you know, Certainly. side by side uh-huh. and very different. So aside from that, uh, I'm following up my research on smuggling to um, the study of, uh, of actually incarceration.
2: Hmm. So um,
0: uh, I worked for four years in, 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 in San Houston State in Huntsville and uh, down the road from San Houston State is the Walls Unit prison, which held Gregorio Cortez. Gregorio Cortez, you know, the famous corrido hero is was in that prison. And I was teaching Texas history, and I became curious about, you know, what happened to Mexican inmates in Texas? What happened to these Tejanos and Mexicanos that were locked up? So I'm basically studying the Mexican prison in Texas. I have identified this prison that was the place that they put all first-term Mexican inmates. There's very little research done on it. I know that um, Rosales talks about this a little bit in his book, Mm Raza. So I'm studying basically, you know, uh, incarceration of Mexican inmates how they were a majority in this one prison, how they're basically doing these kind of tasks that are akin to slavery in terms of picking cotton, but they're escaping to Mexico. They are uh, singing songs in the prison radio. The prison system has a radio mm-hmm. and in 1938. They come, they go to the stage and they sing solito Lindo. When you sing solito Lindo and you're not a free person, canta means a lot.
2: Right.
0: They're participating in prison rodeos. So I'm very, very excited to tell their story. And I think, I mean, <laughs> I try to work with the with the material I have at hand or paint with the material that I, I mean, with the paints that I have. And I was in Huntsville and I wanted to, to take advantage of that in terms of looking at the, uh, the resources that were at hand. And that's what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. And I think that after smuggling, looking at incarceration makes sense in yeah, terms of uh, that being, you know, a progression.
1: Certainly, certainly. Well, I certainly look forward to uh, those two projects. And, you know, just thank you again for your time. Uh, for your efforts on this book and, and for your, your just graciousness to come on uh, New Books in Latino Studies and, and share with us your thoughts and about the book itself. and So, thanks again, George. Appreciate it a lot.
0: Absolutely, it was an honor to be on your show and thank you so much.
1: Thank you for listening to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez and I hope you have enjoyed my conversation today with George T. Diaz, author of Border Contraband A History of Smuggling Across the Rio Grande published by the University of Texas Press in 2015. If you'd like to reach us at New Books in Latino Studies, please send us an email to newbooksinlatinostudies at gmail.com. You may also reach out to us via Facebook and Twitter. We also encourage you to grab a copy of Professor Diaz's book, which you may do so by clicking on the Amazon link on our New Books in Latino Studies page. Thank you.